Hello, everyone. I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and I thank you for finding my podcast. Here you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but your faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. Childhood amnesia is the obvious but somewhat clumsy term used by scientists and researchers to explain why most people only have vague memories before five or six years old. The brain simply hasn't developed its capacity to hold on to our memories. Now, this doesn't mean a person has no memory of anything before he or she begins kindergarten. Quite the contrary. Some of us have memories, flashbulb, fleeting memories as they may be, as early as our second birthday. If you take a moment, and you might need more than a moment, I wonder what is the earliest memory that you can recall. I have a twin sister. We are very much alike and we are very much different. Our childhoods were sometimes traumatic. Our mother was rarely well. Our younger brother suffered suffered from major illness after major illness, leaving my sister and I often on our own. The neighborhood in which we grew up was dangerous. She and I witnessed a murder-suicide before we were four years old. An act of domestic violence that spilled out into the front yard of our neighbor's house and took the life of the abused and the abuser. I wasn't more than 50 feet away when the first gunshot was fired, and I can still see and smell and feel everything about those moments. It plays through my mind like a frame-by-frame Zabruder film. My sister has no memory of the event whatsoever. And she was standing right beside me. Her childhood memories are sketchier than my own. It's impossible to say exactly why. She had additional traumas as well. That's her story to tell, not mine. But it's not uncommon for her to call me and say, Hey, do you remember such and such or so and so? And it's my memory bank that seems to be the one that works over hers. I think I know the answer to that one, however. She was the firstborn, something that she reminds me of to this day. She was far stronger and a more confident child than I was. I was afraid of my own shadow, ripped apart by phobias and irrational worries, unwilling to plunge into the deep water, literally or figuratively. I'm certain, certain that it was witnessing that violence so early, that and all of the hellfire and brimstone preaching that I endured. But not her. She had courage. She still does. She had moxie. She still does. And I held on to her dress tail as she pulled me along. So while she was active and engaged... I was observing. As she led the way, I watched oh so closely. 
as she actively lived her childhood, I spent a lot of time watching our childhood. She has the experiences, but not necessarily the memories. I have the memories, as my mind works like a kind of early life documentary. Perfectly illustrated. I asked my sister this week what her earliest childhood memory was, knowing that I was going to ask you that today. She took a few minutes, and her first memory is me, our fourth birthday party. It was an extravaganza, and I got so excited about it all, I peed my pants. Right there in front of everyone. Photos from the event confirm this. As in some of the pictures, I am dressed exactly like my sister, the way my mom liked to dress us as twins. And then there is... A series of photos where my pants are a bit darker than hers. And then there's another series of photos where I'm wearing an entirely different pair of pants. The earliest memory that I can conjure up, I can't be more than two years old. I know that because that was the age I was when my grandfather died. It is a passing shadow. It's a flicker, but it's there. I'm at my grandmother's house. Big creepy brick house with a terrifying basement and a living room that always smelled of fresh cut kindling for the fireplace. But I'm outside. My sister and I are being pushed in a swing set. It's an old school swing set, metal poles that would rear up on one end if you got to swinging too high. Can I get an amen? You know what I'm talking about. It had a slide that was a full story high with no guardrails and made of sheet metal. And I am certain that slide reached boiling temperatures in the summer sun and would just peel the skin right off your backside if you were wearing shorts. But I was too young for sliding. My sister and I are in that little carriage swing being gently pushed by my grandfather. And it's, the, it's not only my first memory, it's the only memory I have of my grandfather before he died. And it's the first memory I have of my grandmother, my heroic stout-hearted, unflappable grandmother, blessed be her name and her memory. I don't want you to think that I have total recall of that day. I have only seconds. Granddaddy, holding on to the swing pole, he's wearing overalls and giving us a gentle push. He is probably drunk. Grandmother is right behind him, likely supervising him, not us. My sister and I are in that swing, it must have been cold, and we are tucked in with a blanket, a needle-stitched, laboriously handmade patchwork quilt that was made by my grandmother and given to me on my first birthday. My sister had a matching counterpart. In fact, my grandmother made such a quilt for every child of hers when they married, a small one for every grandchild when they were born, there were 19 of us. And she made another quilt for every grandchild who got married. And some of the great-grandchildren even got a quilt when they got married. Until time and arthritis wouldn't allow it. Do you know what a labor of love a hand-stitched quilt is? You assemble all the scrap pieces. You lay out the design. You hand sew every millimeter of cloth together with a two-inch needle sharp enough to pierce a two-by-four. 
And my grandmother welded that needle like it was Excalibur, wearing two thimbles to protect her fingers. You find the proper stuffing. You find the solid backing material and the binding. It takes months. Then it was to the Singer sewing machine, non-electric. It was driven by a belt powered by the spin of the right hand and a pedal on the floor. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Thread spool on top, threaded bobbin beneath the tabletop. It's a work of love. It's a work of art. My sister, I think, has that sewing machine today. And my friend Chris Alvarado gave me one of the exact model that he had somehow acquired. It's a nostalgic treasure. And so is that first blanket. That patchwork quilt my grandmother made. I still have it. And every time I see it, every time I smell it, I remember. I remember my grandmother. I recall that first memory. Call me crazy. Call me wistful. But there is still comfort in that little piece of patchwork. There's still her strength in it. It's called object attachment by child psychologists, by the way. And I know that. When we are young, we believe that certain objects, a quilt, a stuffed animal, a toy, a security blanket, has some kind of magical power in it. My 25-year-old son still sleeps with a Tennessee Titans blanket that he bought on Christmas Day at the Titans game in Nashville when it was about 4 degrees. My 20-year-old son has a red fuzzy that he has had since before kindergarten, and it's on his bed today. Cindy and Bryce gave up such frivolities for weighted blankets. They can't seem to sleep without them. As to my patchwork quilt, it is put away for safekeeping. It kept me safe and warm, helping me move eventually from fretful, fearful child to mostly functioning adult. My sister helped with that too, constantly kicking my rear. Safekeeping is a great word. The blanket did that for me. It's the least I can do for it now, fragile and thin as it is. And maybe one day when I am fragile and thin, I might need it again. But for now, I can let it go. And for a brief moment, so did Linus. On this final Sunday of Advent, we have arrived at my favorite Christmas special of all time. All those December evenings over the years, peering into that black and white television, Frosty the Snowman, yes, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, oh yes. How the Grinch stole Christmas every year. But the one I absolutely could not miss, and I've watched it twice already this year, A Charlie Brown Christmas. It aired for the first time December 9th, 1965, years before I was born. Based on Charles Schultz's comic strip, The Peanuts, and featuring the immediately recognizable music of the Vince Garaldi Jazz Trio. It is as classic as it gets. It is also the only one of these Christmas specials I have been talking about this year that is overtly and intentionally Christian. Frosty, oh, he's the archetype hero and wise man. He communicates the theme of Christmas, but there is no, quote, reason for the season in there anywhere. It's the same with Rudolph and the Grinch. But Charlie Brown, Schultz. Director Bill Melendez, who is also the voice of Snoopy, and producer Lee Mendelson go all in on the Christ child. And it is Linus who delivers the goods. Charlie Brown is feeling depressed. 
The Christmas season does not does that to many people. He says, I think there must be something wrong with me. He says to his friend Linus, Christmas is coming, but I'm not happy. I don't feel the way I'm supposed to feel. I just don't understand Christmas, I guess. And this theme continues for most of the next 25 minutes. Charlie Brown grows about, goes about dejected, kicked around by his friends. Lucy tries to help him by making him the director of the annual Christmas play. But even then, seeing he needs a break from the cast, and the cast needs a break from him, they send him out to get a Christmas tree. Go get a great big shiny aluminum Christmas tree. That's it, Charlie Brown. You get the tree. Get the biggest aluminum tree you can find, Charlie Brown. Maybe painted pink. Do something right for a change, Charlie Brown. Charlie and Linus head off to get the tree. And they bring back the most pitiful, wiry, wilting seedling you can imagine. And there are many of us to this day that when we see a bad Christmas tree, we say, that looks like a Charlie Brown Christmas tree. The brutality rains down on poor Charlie Brown like a hailstorm. All the peanuts start chipping in. Boy, are you stupid, Charlie Brown. What kind of tree is that? You were supposed to get a good tree. Can't you even tell a good tree from a poor tree? I told you he'd goof it up. He's not the kind you can depend on to do anything right. You're hopeless, Charlie Brown. Completely hopeless. You've been dumb before, Charlie Brown, but this time you really did it. And as they all laugh at him, he cries out in desperation, Everything I do turns into a disaster. Isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? And then it happens. What producer Lee Mendelson calls the most magical two minutes in all of TV animation. Linus answers his best friend. Sure, Charlie Brown, I can tell you what Christmas is all about. He takes center stage. He says, lights, please. And with seven-year-old Christopher Shea providing the voice of Linus Van Pelt, under the spotlight, Linus says this. And there were in that same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be the sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Linus turns to his friend and sweetly, innocently says, That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. Linus had a defining characteristic, a feature as prominent as Lucy's strength in Charlie Brown's giant egghead. That blanket. That blue, clutched, ever-present blanket. 
in the opening scene as Charlie Brown pours out his frustrations to Linus. Linus is holding it to his left ear and sucking his thumb. Lucy derides her little brother, saying to Linus, You think you're so smart with that blanket. What are you going to do with it when you grow up? And he answers, Maybe I'll make it into a sports coat. Again, as they practice the Christmas play, Linus is assigned the role of shepherd. And he is told by Lucy, Linus, you've got to get rid of that stupid blanket. And here, memorize these lines. Memorize it and be ready to recite it when your cue comes. And get rid of that stupid blanket. What's a Christmas shepherd going to look like holding a stupid blanket like that? Linus, with a severe case of object attachment, replies to his sister, Well... This is one Christmas shepherd who's going to keep his trusty blanket with him. And he did. Until. Until he takes the stage to explain the true meaning of Christmas to Charlie Brown. And you could watch this film 50 times and still miss the subtlety, the absolute genius of the writer and director. Linus is delivering those lines from Luke chapter 2. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them. And the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, fear not. And as soon as he says, fear not, Linus drops his blanket. And it is the only time... In the history of this one feature or any comic block or movie Charles Schutz ever produced where Linus is intentionally without his security blanket. Fear not. And he lets it go. That is absolute brilliance. One of two basic fears and sometimes both plague each and every one of us. Even if we are unaware of it. It is the fear of being overwhelmed by the world by life, by circumstances, or it is the fear of being abandoned, forsaken, left alone. If you dive deep enough, if you go back far enough, and you will find one or both of those fears lurking in the deep waters of your soul, being powerless against all that we must face, or being cast aside and forgotten. We are afraid it is a human condition of being either unsuccessful or unloved. And why wouldn't we feel this way? Why wouldn't these fears be rooted deep within us? Bad parenting, a ruthless culture, a society that kicks us around like we are Charlie Brown, unhealthy, shame-based religion. The message we get, as James Hollis says, is that the world is big and you are not. Everything out there is powerful and you are not. What are you going to do about it? Most of us take to knitting and sewing our security blankets. A patchwork of coping strategies. And then we clutch to it for all that it is worth. We avoid. We procrastinate. We suppress and repress. We distract and we project. We medicate. We run away. We become workaholics. We become addicts. We become judgmental, we become angry, we scapegoat and accuse other people, other groups of being the problem. It's how we adapt. We're trying to survive a dangerous, overwhelming, and unloving world, but we aren't handling anything when we do that. Back to James Hollis. 
Listen closely. Learning that fear governs our lives may be an unpleasant discovery. But it is the beginning of liberation. It's not others. It's not history. It's plain old fear. Your fear. No, you can't get rid of fear. You can't dismiss your fears. But we don't want to give them the veto rights over our lives either. One of the most critical recognitions in life is that fear is evil. Evil in that it takes away the one and only life that you have been given to live. Fear is the enemy and it's as simple as that. It's now widely reported that the commandment fear not appears 365 times in the scriptures, one for every day of the year. That's not quite right. That's a marketing scheme. But it is north of 100. And it is the most repeated instruction given anywhere in the Bible. Fear not. Because it's what most of us need to hear most often. Fear not. For I am with you. Be not troubled, for I am your God. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. Do not be anxious about anything, but pray about everything. And with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Then the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. There is no fear in love because perfect love casts out fear. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for thou art with me. Thy rod, thy staff, they comfort me. Fear not. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, tucked in in a blanket, lying in a manger. So glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward all men.